Well, let's see. This one. I interpreted for Dr. Sachs last night at Cody's bookstore and found him characteristically charismatic. He has quite a following of deaf people, although none of them is hearing this program. That's okay. They can see him live lots of times. Terry from Emeryville. Would you like to come out and help out? I don't know. All right. Is Terry here? Would you like to do a little uh, interpreting? All right. Why don't you, you come on and do that be okay? All right. We'll find out. Our next guest is a neurologist, and he has become made aware, uh, we've become aware of him through his writings over the years. His books include Migraine, an exploration and study of the history of that phenomenon and the visions that sometimes are, go along with it. Uh, Awakenings, the story of people who were cured with uh, L-DOPA for a short time. Um, this account was later uh, portrayed by Robin Williams in the movie uh, Awakenings. Also, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, a collection of essays and observations of people with neurological disorders and diseases that affected their perceptions of the world. And through his writings, our sense of the world is in turn changed. His new collection of essays is called Anthropologist on Mars. Please welcome writer and neurologist, Dr. Oliver Sacks. Thanks for coming to West Coast Live today. What, uh, the, your essays uh, are filled with uh, compassionate examination of, of people who have diseases, and you've thought about disease, mentioned it as a way of doubling a person's life. I wonder if you could explain that. Um, well, sort of in, in earlier books, I've just seen disease as destructive, and obviously it is in the first place, but then I think people may sometimes reconstruct themselves and their lives in different ways. The first essay is about an artist who suddenly lost all color vision, only saw in black and white and felt devastated by this, felt it was the end of him as an artist and a man. But then the black and white world became, which was first was horrible, became very beautiful and, and inspiring to him and he became a great black and white artist. Everyone sort of spoke about this extraordinary, you know, the old man has got into the strange black and white period. It's his greatest. Very few people knew there was a neurological disaster behind it, which had sort of been turned to creative use. Much of your, uh, the idea that the brain is capable of, of taking adversity like that or a challenge or something that becomes a deficit and somehow working around it to another solution to survive. Well, I think now we see the brain as much more plastic and as having all sorts of possible alternative paths. And, uh, you know, and I, th I think it's very exciting to try and encourage these if the original path is blocked or destroyed. You were being, um, uh, as a, how did you develop the style of, of, of observing people, keeping notes on them, reflecting and ruminating? I mean, it's, it's in, in some ways an elaborate case history of, of a patient, but it's also uh, much more than that. It's a story of a, of a human life. Um, well, I think it's a sort of, it's, it's a rather old-fashioned form of medicine, and it's, it's how things used to be in the last century when the, the individual was always the center. But I, I sort of, I love describing, and, and um, I love biographies, and I love histories. I always have, and I think they're sort of slotted into to medicine. But so much of medicine consists of statistics now in huge series, but I think these individual stories are, are crucial. 
so much of um, medicine also before, uh, when it was trying to examine neurological problems, dealt with physical symptoms, uh, what was external, what, what, what could be felt, what could be just observed. Uh, and now you have tools accessible to you, uh, PETs and MRIs and CAT scans and something new called a squid, a squid. Um, uh, which allow you to sort of look into the skull and watch, watch changes. And we're learning about mental changes uh, that go on between men and women, that there are actually maybe genetic differences in the brain structure and how the brains function. Uh, does this kind of quantitative observation enhance your storytelling? Um, I, uh, I think it could. I mean, it would be lovely to sort of be able to give parallel descriptions of someone's mental state and their, and their states of mind, and at the same time have a squid. <laughs> what is a squid? Um, I love cephalopods, but it's not a cephalopod. No, it's a, it's a sort of, a, it's a magnetic picture of the, of the brain. And the squid stands for? Um, uh, I've, uh, I've sort of forgotten. <laughs> well, lunch, whatever, I don't know what to say. Yeah, I can't keep up with all the acronyms. How, uh, several of the cases that you've written about have involved Tourette's syndrome, which is Right, the ticks, the sudden jerking moving, the skipping along, the maybe the explosion of expletives or some sort of a phrase that people catch and hold on to. Uh, and what is it, you, you, you say that you go Tourette hunting to look for some of these people? Uh, do I say that? <laughs> um, no, I, um, uh, I think this is the most fascinating condition because of this um, energizing of, of the mind and the imagination and the emotions sometimes as well as the body. And although medically you can see it as a, as a syndrome and a particular organic uh, disorder, I think it can also become a mode of being which is sort of different from our own. People, these people construct the world in different ways. But I, um, uh, this used to be considered very rare, one in a million, but it's probably much commoner than that. And um, I actually went around the country with a friend who had Tourette's and who sort of introduced me to the community, the fraternity. I, um, there is something of a Tourette fraternity, although it doesn't have a language yet, like the deaf community, although they're beginning to talk about Tourettes. Tourettes? Yes. And, and that would be uh, like a, um, a standard um, vocabulary of behavior? Um, no, um, Tourettes would be a, an abbreviated witty language uh, which, which people with Tourette's would understand very well, and the rest of us wouldn't. One, one of the, uh, the moving accounts was of a surgeon in, uh, in Canada who had Tourette's, and since this is a, a syndrome that can affect people's movements and sudden jerky motions, the idea of a surgeon uh, having these um, could be intimidating, but you, you portray this man as how he has incorporated it at some expense to his own personality and mental energy into him. So when he's focused on doing his surgery, uh, he's very precise and still. Uh, but what happens when he isn't operating? Um, well, when I, I saw, saw him with these sudden convulsive movements and some amazing ticks, he would sort of suddenly, suddenly put his foot on your head. Um, I, it was a very sort of affectionate tick. It was rather, rather engaging. But I, <laughs> um, uh, but I, I wondered what sort of life he could lead, and I, I was staggered. You know, uh, when he told me he was a surgeon, I said, "You know, one of the one of one of these one of these movements, and you'll you'll have the aorta in two. Um, but um, in fact, um, when I scrubbed with him, there was nothing during surgery. Although the moment the stream of concentration is broken, 
At one point, he had to go and look at some x-rays in the middle of the operation, and it all sort of came back. But um, I don't know that there's an expense to the personality. I think he just shifted from a toretic mode into a non-toretic, or maybe you know, there's a, a wonderful toretic disc jockey in Iowa who is very foul-mouthed and copulatic off the air, None of that occurs on the air, but the energy of Tourette's is there, and I sometimes wondered whether the swift orchestrated surgery was in fact a form of Tourette's. <laughs> you, you were invited to fly in the surgeon's plane with him as the pilot. Did that worry you at all? Um, yeah, yeah he, 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 said, he said, I'm the world's only flying Tourette's surgeon. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'd, um, no, I'd had an experience canoeing with a friend with Tourette's, and the, the canoe sort of, um, it became an extension of his body, and it sort of pitched and plunged violently, and it was like being in a storm, and actually I longed for the canoe to capsize so I could, so I could get out and swim safely to the shore. <laughs> I'd, um, and I, I wondered if there would be something similar with the plane. I had, I had images of him, you know, if him, um, you know, there's something very playful about Tourette sometimes, and playing with boundaries, physical, social, um, and, and uh, close shaves, and I thought he might sort of have impulses to spin the plane or loop the loop, the loop or sort of suddenly to lunge out and touch the propeller. But um, uh, this, um, people with Tourette's were often fascinated by spinning objects, but in fact it was a fairly, a fairly quiet ride over the Rockies, and it was... Um, one of, the, uh, one of the things that the surgeon observed was that uh, it, Tourette seemed to loosen some inhibitions in him, that, that he, was, uh, he was able to be more playful in a way. Um, well, you know, Tourette's is complicated, but in some sense I think it's rather easy to imagine because all of us have impulses, and, and in Tourette's, um, I remember, for example, with a, um, a Tourette friend of mine in Toronto, we were passing an outdoor cafe, and there was a woman about to sink her teeth into a delicious cheeseburger. <laughs> and and, and he, he suddenly leapt forward and, and took, took a bite out of it. <laughs> um, now, I, I thought of doing it, uh, but, but he did it. <laughs> and, but that's what I mean by disinhibition. The, your essays suggest that you would like to be in the mind of some of the people that you observe from time to time. You'd like to experience it. Um, yes, very much. Uh, as you say, sort of, you know, part of medicine is objective observation, but also uh, one needs to share the experience, at least to, you know, to have some idea of what it's like. But I think that these uh, neurological experiences are so other in a way that they're not to be imagined. I mean, even with the first man who lost color and was in a sort of black and white world, although he said at first it was like black and white television or photography, it, w it wasn't like that. But I, um, uh, people report what they can or they, but uh, there just has to be some effort of imagination or empathy. But I, I would love to experience what all my patients or subjects or characters experience briefly. Is there a way that you could induce black and white vision in yourself for a short time? Oh, yes, I intend to have this done next month. <laughs> um, no, there's a part of the brain, at the back of the brain, in the visual cortex, which constructs color. If that is knocked out, you can't see color, and also you can't imagine color or remember color. In a sense, the idea of color 
is lost. You have, um, and anyhow, one can buzz this part of the brain with something like a squid in reverse. And uh, then the world may blanch out, and then I may actually experience what I've been so fascinated by and see what my patient saw. Do you have any fears about it not reversing? Uh, yeah, uh, a few. <laughs> but at this point, you're, you're curious enough. Uh, yes, and I think it's probably safe enough, I think. What, what sort of other buzzing have you done to your mind over time to try to, <laughs> to replicate symptoms? Ah, uh, well, you know, um, the 60s was a psychedelic era. <laughs> and, um, you know, one, one took most things. Um, um, but I, um, you know, and uh, I, uh, I think I probably couldn't have understood some of the experiences, say, of my awakenings patients on L-DOPA if I hadn't had something, you know, sort of vaguely analogous myself. So speaking of uh, the, the patients, there's been a, a recent uh, discussion in the, in the press about uh, a surgical solution to Parkinson's, uh, which is causing great debate between neurologists and neurosurgeons. Neurologists who sneer at the, the neurosurgeons for a surgical solution, oh, they just want to cut it out. Neurosurgeons who say the neurologists don't want to explore the idea that possibly there's a surgical cure for Parkinson's. Um, I presume you mean pallidotomy. Yeah, pallidotomy, yeah. Right. Um, well, the, um, no, I'm, I'm intrigued by this. When I first came to the States, I was here in San Francisco at Mount Zion Hospital, which I think is subsequently is now engulfed by UCSF. But anyhow, we had a unit. We were doing pallidotomies and thalamotomies. And then when L-DOPA came along, these surgical procedures sort of were forgotten. But they're now being revived. Now, I have a friend in New York um, with uh, a very gifted man, an artist with severe Parkinson's. And uh, he, in fact, went to Sweden two months ago. And he came back not only much looser and easier on, on, the, uh, uh, on the worst side, but with all his freezings and his, and actually he, is, he was the model for De Niro in, in Leonard L. And, and there was sort of, much of his life was sort of in this contorted state. And he's now not having either the contortions or the freezings. I don't know what's happened. I can't believe it's a placebo effect. He hasn't been able to drive his car for 10 years and he, he, he drives it now. So at least in him, Something happened. Why it happened or what's happened, I don't know. But I believe my senses. I wouldn't care to generalize. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm very much a believer in describing just large numbers of individuals and their differences. Do you, uh, your, your cases focus on an individual at some length of time. You live with them, you'll travel with them. The case of Stephen, the uh, autistic artist who was able from the age of 13 to draw incredibly precise drawings of London, and you travel then um, with him. Uh, you traveled with him to Russia to see how he behaved there. How much time do you tend to spend with somebody that you're writing up one of your cases on? Um, well, Steve and I have known for, for eight years, and um, although I would only see him see him at intervals, uh, instantly he was here in San Francisco. He, he liked the pyramid building. He said it was like an isosceles triangle. You know, it was very strange hearing this from someone who was, who was almost nonverbal, but he doesn't have the social and the emotional language, but he has the, the geometrical language. Um, but uh, I will probably spend sort of hundreds of hours 
And I think one, one needs to if you're really going to try and enter someone's life. Um, I should say that my life doesn't entirely consist of these sort of exotic, sort of jet-setting neurological adventures. <laughs> I, um, you know, I, um, I also have a sort of stable neurological base in the, in the Bronx with my seven or eight hundred patients with chronic disease whom I've been with now for, for 29 years. Are they, um, are they as favorite to you as, as the more exotic cases? Um, they're favorite in, in, in a different way, and sometimes they're exotic. I mean, I, in some sense, I think, I think everyone and everything is exotic. Your, your stories uh, enlighten us, they entertain us, we laugh when we hear accounts and so forth, but there, there are people living real lives behind these, these symptoms. Uh, how do they react uh, to a public portrayal of them? Do you change names? Are they pleased to see them written about? Well, this is, this is a very delicate, complex, and for me partly sort of guilt-ridden, or at least anxiety-ridden matter. Um, this first came up uh, 25 years ago with the awakenings patients. A lot of these people had, were very conscious of having been neglected and forgotten, put away, and many of them said, in effect, tell our story or it'll never be known. And um, although I hesitated to, and originally when Awakenings was published, I thought, well, I'll just publish it in England and not here. Though, in fact, one of the patients rapidly got hold of her story, and uh, um, she actually objected to a paragraph of physical description, although the general portrayal of a very tragic and also heroic life was okay with her. I deleted the paragraph of, of physical description, but I wondered how my patients would feel after having become characters. But it was, it was okay. Mm -hmm. The relationship was still there between us. You know, the, the young drummer with Tourette's, whom I call Wittitiki Ray in the hat book, um, is still my patient and also my friend, even though he is, you know, the portrait of him came out 10 years ago. I do think it's possible uh, to do this, although it's a, it's a delicate business. You yourself have been portrayed in, in Awakenings by Robin Williams the, in the motion picture, and you're currently being followed around by a 60 Minutes crew who wants to do a story on you. Uh, what is it like for the observer to be observed, and what do you think they're noting about you? Um, well, um, off the record, <laughs> Um, I, I'm sort of scared of these 60-minute people. Um, you know, they sort of deal with disclosures and um, exposures. But um, I'm, I'm not... Um, uh, no, I'm happy to do... A, you know, one of my books, in effect, is a case history of myself, A Leg to Stand On, which was... After you'd injured your quadricep in a fall. So it had to be a patient yourself, right? Right, yeah. I'd, um, I'd um, had an encounter with a bull. And um, uh, I sort of overreacted to it, and I had a panic, and I fell off a cliff, and I tore off the whole quadriceps and its nerve supply, and lost the movement and the sense of having a leg. And that was very weird business, very difficult to communicate. You know, I don't know whether, whether you or, or, or anyone here has ever had a spinal anesthetic, but if you have a spinal, you don't just become numb. You end in the middle. 
you'll just end here, and what lies below is not you and not anything. It's the strangest thing, and um, very difficult to communicate that. But anyhow, I wrote that story, but this is different from being profiled by 60 Minutes. I, um, I don't quite know what they're doing, and... Uh, <laughs> uh, but it must, it, it, so in a way, uh, it would be like a patient not knowing quite what you're looking for and noting and recording. Um, yes, perhaps it is a little bit like that, although, although I think the patient knows. You see, for example, the colorblind artist knew that I would be especially interested in this, although how far it would go, he didn't know. Um, for example, I describe him when this happened. He'd been to his studio, his paintings were drained of color, and then he went home for comfort, and as he described it, his wife had been transformed, had become an animated gray statue and his own flesh was gray, and he couldn't imagine it otherwise, and it was very difficult for him to make love. Now, I wondered how far I should pursue that. I, I, did, I did say that, but um, as again, I don't know how far 60 minutes will go. Yeah. <laughs> One of the, uh, the aspects of your father's medical practice that he was loath to give up when, when he was, what, 90, was the practice of house calls. For him, that was the most important part of medicine in England in, in what, I don't know which decade that was. Um, well, it was very nearly this decade. No, um, the, um, the old man lived to, to 95, and he was very, very energetic till the end. When he was 90, you know, we said, well, at least give up the, the house calls. And he said, no, he says, I'll, I'll keep them, I'll give up everything else. But um, he had this very strong feeling that you can only see so much in the office or in the surgery, as they call it in England, and you have to see people in their, in their own home, their own environment, their own world. And in a sense, I do regard the present book as sort of being house calls, as it were, of a, of a sort to see, you know, um, to see a sort of a, uh, uh, an autistic biologist and an expert on cattle, you know, in her ranch and so forth in Colorado. Uh, you, you, you have to see people in their own environments. Although, um, and at this point maybe, medicine becomes a sort of anthropology. There was a particular point about 20 years ago, actually when I was seeing a young man with Tourette syndrome, when I thought, I can't imagine what life is like for him. And then I went for a walk with him and shared, you know, shared a bit of life with him. Was this uh, something that your father instilled in you? Uh, what, what sort of medical information as a young lad did you glean from him? Um, yeah, I used to love um, going, going on house calls with, with my father, and I think um, and my parents also both, both medical storytellers, <laughs> so, so I guess this is, this is in my blood. Your mother, your mother was a surgeon. How did she influence you in your career? Um, well, at one point she, you know, she hoped I would be a surgeon, but I, <laughs> I'm, I'm incurably clumsy, and that, that, that didn't, didn't work out. Um, but she, she was also a, a storyteller, and um, I, I remember telling her all the stories of awakenings before I wrote them down, and she would listen, and she knew all the people well. And would she guide you, suggest questions, a, a line of inquiry? Um, she'd sometimes do that, or she'd sometimes say, that's, that's not real, that's not right. <laughs> Three words like that are sometimes enough. <laughs> do you find that these neurological problems and symptoms and disease exist in, in people regardless of uh, social class? I mean, if you have a practice that extends from 
ranches in, in, the, in the West to, to the Bronx, there must be an extraordinary range of, of life that your practice cuts across. Um, yeah, though I think in the way some disorders sort of cut across or transcend all the barriers, I felt this very much last summer when I visited an island of the colorblind in Micronesia, a little island called Pingalat, where a quarter of the population carry the gene for total color blindness, for black and white vision. But I went, this is extremely rare, one in 50,000 of the general population, but I went with a Norwegian colleague who himself has this. And when he got to the island, he found his brothers and sisters, you know, the, the, as it were, these naked achromatopes on a coral atoll, and they immediately recognized him. And it was wonderful to see that, you know, at some level beyond all the differences of culture and everything else, they shared, they shared the experience. That's uh, been what is, uh, some people are trying to describe as actual the, the categorization of, of genetic race, that we're actually more linked to people with similar diseases and syndromes than we are by um, culture or skin color, that, that uh, somebody with Tay Sachs in, in South Africa is, is related to somebody with Tay Sachs in, in, in Sweden, and that that's the, the genetic linkage uh, that can form a group, just as your uh, Scandinavian friend went to the atoll. Um, well, it, 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 goes, it goes both ways. I mean, some, some groups are, are sort of, I think, purely cultural, and, other, and others purely, purely biological. I mean, it's, it's, it's usually a mixture. When, uh, I'd like to know a little bit more about your day-to-day -day life in, in the Bronx. Do you see patients over uh, several hours at a time? Do you, do, you, are you, do you spend a day with one patient in the Bronx uh, for eight hours at a stretch? Um, well, uh, my day starts with a swim. I get to the hospital early. I usually see three or four patients in the morning. And then I usually go for a walk in the botanical garden. I sometimes go to the Bronx Zoo. And then when I come back, somehow narratives have formed in my mind. And then I write them down. Um, and I tend to do the same in the afternoon. I, I do this two days a week. Uh, and then one day a week, I, I will perhaps see research patients with whom I may spend much longer. For example, um, when I go back next week, I'm going to see two children, uh, a little boy and a little girl, both achromatopes, both totally colorblind. And I will spend several hours testing them, and then I just want to sort of stroll around New York and spend a few days with them to know how it is for achromatopic children in New York, as distinct from achromatopic children in Pingalap and achromatopic children in Norway. Do you have any theory at this point? Any, any prediction of how they'll be different? None at all. <laughs> um, I, I'm not a very theory-driven person. Um, I mean, people are always saying, Sachs, where's your general theory? Um, I... Let me guess, those are your esteemed colleagues. <laughs> right. Um, no, I'm, um, uh, I mean, obviously in some sense there always are assumptions and biases and presuppositions and there's no, there's no, there are no observations from nowhere. There are observations from your viewpoint, whether it's conscious or not. But I, I, I like to, in a way, confine myself to telling stories and let let conclusions emerge. The, uh, one of the, uh, the cases involved a, a young man who had been a hippie. He had uh, 
entered, uh, I think, a Hare Krishna commune, and people saw him as becoming serene and placid when, in fact, there was a brain tumor growing in him. And what was the ultimate result of, of what happened to him? Um, well, this, he was allowed to develop a huge brain tumor which pressed on the optic tracks and blinded him, pressed on the temporal lobes of the, of the brain, the memory parts of the brain, and made him an amnesiac, pressed on the frontal lobes, and in a sense took away his, his judgment. This was very, very tragic because this was a benign tumor and it should never have happened. I will say I'm, um, I'm very suspicious of spiritual and fringe groups who, who don't attend to the body and the organic and the physiology. I'm all for the spirit so long as it doesn't ignore the body. And he, it was terrible that he was allowed to develop this. But his amnesia basically marooned him in the 60s. Uh, he no longer registered anything new. He had an encyclopedic memory of the 60s and especially the Grateful Dead, whom he was a <laughs> deadhead. And then, and then it stopped. Um, he, uh, uh, he, he didn't realize that the, the pig pen was dead. And he, he but um, then um, there was an amazing time when we, uh, I'd met Mickey Hart and some of the Grateful Dead and I, I, took, I took him along to a concert. In the first half of the concert, there was early music and he sang along and then he didn't seem like an amnesiac. He was completely with it. In the second half of the concert, they got onto more recent stuff and he got very, very bewildered. He said, this is weird stuff. He says, it's like the music of the future. <laughs> and this was uncanny because of course it is in a sense, a future he can never know. And, um, uh, but he, he loved it. He was very, very excited by going to the concert. And I think he probably felt it was still in the 60s with, with a few premature uh, odd pieces. But the next day, when I saw him in the hospital, I asked him about the Grateful Dead and, and the concert, which had been in Madison Square Garden. And he said, I've, I've never been to the garden. And, um, but um, in a sense, I'm not sure how an amnesiac like this can learn or be told anything. Uh, I didn't know what would happen after his father died. I, you know, I tried to break the news to him. I said, I guess you must be missing your father. He says, what do you mean? He was here this morning. And I said, no, no, he wasn't here this morning. And when I broke the news, Greg, Greg sort of wept and broke down and really doubly, first at the sudden news of his father's death and then at the idea that he himself hadn't taken it in. And I left him with his thoughts for a few seconds. And when I came back a minute later, he had no memory of the conversation. And I thought, you know, will he be able to mourn? And... Um, because mourning involves holding on to a memory. Oh, oh absolutely. And... Uh, you know, and sort of, in a way, letting the connection sever slowly. Um, I think, though, in some sense, he, he has mourned, although I think it's not at the level of explicit memory, but at some implicit level, which even people with amnesia can live at. I want to catch up with you on, on one thing. As I recall, you, you were a heavyweight lifting champion here in California. Uh, a long, long time ago. 
How, what was what was the oh, amount of weight? Um, well, the, the, um, um, there's a, a lift called the uh, the deep knee bend or squat. They used to call me Doctor Squat, <laughs> and and, uh, and here actually in San Francisco, I got the Californian state record, which was 600 pounds in 1960. Um, I, I regret that I ever touched a weight. Uh, uh, because I used to go out for heavy poundage, and it was sort of damaging, and um, now I just swim. And and do you think that contributed to the uh, the quadricep injury? Um, yes, I've in fact torn off the quadriceps on on both sides, and um, this is sort of unusual. And I think I probably gave them a bad time in my weightlifting days. Dr. Oliver Sacks, his new book called Anthropologist on Mars and author of Awakenings, Migraine, Manimus Took His Wife for a Hat, and what next? I, um, I think maybe some, some travel pieces and some, uh, some general pieces, not written by the neurologist, but just by, by me. <laughs> anyway, Dr. Oliver Sachs, thank you very much for being here on West Coast Live. Thank you very much. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.